and welcome to Core of the Matter here on 90.3 The Core, our weekly public affairs show. I'm your host, Yashwanth Manjanath. Those of you who were just listening to The Core the last hour know that I was filling in for a music show. Always weird to be filling in. I usually don't do my own music show until Friday night hanging into Saturday morning from midnight to two. Anyway, today's topic, we're going to go back to public sector unionization. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I had on Daniel DeSalvo, conservative political scientist and writer for National Affairs, a center-right political journal based out of D.C. He wrote an article called The Trouble with Public Sector Unions, and I challenged him on it. And we had a intelligent and level-headed discussion about the merits and the issues with unionization in the public sector. Now, to combat some of the points he made, I cited the work of Jeffrey Keefe at the Economic Policy Institute as, I guess, challenging some of the points he made about overcompensation in the public sector. Well, today we have on Jeffrey Keefe. I interviewed him on Friday and I'm going to give you guys the four-part interview coming up right now. So I hope you guys enjoy it for a different take on unionization in the public sector. I really think me and Jeffrey had an interesting conversation. I hope you guys find it interesting as well and learn as much as I did from Jeffrey on Friday. So without further ado, I'm going to take you guys to the interview right now. You're listening to Core of the Matter here on 90.3 The Core. Joining us now is Rutgers University professor Jeffrey Keefe, who also writes for the Economic Policy Institute. So, Jeffrey, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about the Economic Policy Institute. Okay. I'm a professor at the School of Management and Labor Relations. I study collective bargaining as well as labor markets and human resource policy. Starting back in February of 2010, I began looking at public sector pay as controversy first broke out here in New Jersey, which eventually became a national controversy about whether public sector employees are overpaid. I am a research associate with the Economic Policy Institute, and they kind enough in the summer of 2010 to publish a New Jersey-focused study. They normally don't publish studies that look at states. In return for them publishing the New Jersey study, I agreed to write a national study looking at public sector employee compensation, which became a policy paper entitled Debunking the Myth of Public Employee Pay. Since then, I've written eight eight other state-level studies and several other policy papers on public sector employee pay that have been published by the Economic Policy Institute. Okay, so does the Economic Policy Institute have any ideological or partisan leanings? Yeah, I would say it's it's liberal. It does receive funding from labor unions. Unfortunately, it doesn't fund me. <laughs> uh, so they act as my publisher for these policy studies. And what they bring to bear is they've got several just outstanding labor economists who have a great technical skill who have really helped a whole lot in terms of providing the feedback on my papers. And, of course, they have 
editing, publishing, and media operation that uh, is pretty good. That's all I have my studies to get wide circulation. So why is unionization and collective bargaining in the public sector becoming such a hot topic right now? Well, that, that's an excellent question. You know, in the academic literature, public sector pay by the early 1980s had kind of fallen off the radar. It had been well-established, well-researched, and well-accepted by most of the parties. Uh, we had collective bargaining laws in 34 states that seemed to be working pretty well. The states that didn't have it were the states you would expect not to have it in the south, in the southwest, and in the Rocky Mountains that have displayed hostility towards collective bargaining ever since the beginning of America's time. So we had a system that covered probably over 70% of public employees, and it seemed to be working. Now, what happened, of course, as we went into the recession in 2008, we had very high unemployment levels, and in some states like New Jersey, they continue to be very high. And once you have high unemployment rates, what happens is tax revenue falls. People are no longer paying as much income tax, uh, sales tax decline, tax associated with housing turnover decline. And in a state like New Jersey, what happened is that the state, 80% of the state's revenue flows through to municipalities and other organizations. So the state began cutting back. And the municipalities responded initially by raising property taxes which really set off a property tax revolt. And that's what candidate Christie capitalized on to get elected in defeat Governor John Corzine. We were a little bit ahead in the election cycle. So Christie actually successfully campaigned on this reason that property taxes were so high was because the public sector employees were overpaid. And that got traction. And in the 2010 election, basically every Republican candidate for governor ran on that platform. And only one lost, and that was Meg Whitman in California. Every one of them was elected. And for the most part, they were elected with Republican legislatures that were committed to cutting employee pay and restricting collective bargaining. And their theory is simply that Public sector employee pay, public sector employee collective bargaining was enlarged by the Democrats. Uh, the public sector unions collect dues from their members and give money to Democrats who will then give them pay, big pay increase. And that's why public sector pay was out of whack, according to the Republicans. And they could clearly point to the fact that public sector workers had much better pensions and health benefits than private sector workers, which is true. What they didn't exactly point out is that public sector workers of comparable education level were paid wage-wise considerably less. And that's been the dispute now for over the last year. Right, yeah. Your research suggests that public employees are undercompensated. But at the same time, research done by conservative think tanks like the Heritage Foundation 
suggest right. that public sector unions are actually overcompensated. So where does that disparity come from between your research at the Economic Policy Institute and their research? Okay, what they do is they basically accept my analysis. But then they say I missed things. One, they say I missed the fact that public sector jobs are more secure and therefore there's a compensating wage differential that they estimate to be 15%. However, they can't show that. And when I actually ran through the numbers, clearly it is unshowable. It just doesn't exist. So they, they just picked 15% what out of a hat? Like where do they come up with that number exactly? I'm not exactly sure. I tried to replicate what they did. I couldn't. So then I just went through what a how somebody would think about a compensated wage differential and estimated that, published it, and I showed that it really does not it does not exist because if you look at the private sector, the jobs that are the most secure, basically the argument is this, that there's an attribute about a job that is distasteful, and therefore workers are paid more. So job insecurity should command a premium. Job security should command a penalty. If you look at the private sector, the jobs that are most secure are in finance and insurance. They also command the largest premium, not the largest penalty. So finance and insurance don't look all that much different than government jobs in terms of job security. Jobs that are most insecure in the private sector, amusements, food service, have a penalty associated with it. In other words, after you control for human capital characteristics, they receive the lowest wages of anyone. So I could not find a job security penalty. Right. They did exist. Now, their second argument is a bizarre one, I think. Okay. And it has to do with California, and in particular, somewhat the California, but it has to do with the fact that public sector workers are still in defined benefits. And private sector workers, for the most part, have moved into 401k. And this argument goes something to the effect that if a private sector and a public, uh, if a worker is receiving an 8% employee employer contribution to a 401k, and a worker is receiving an 8% premium to a defined benefit plan like CalPERS. CalPERS is going to return 8% on that investment. And pretty much because of the size of CalPERS in California and its ability to plot things out as well as they do, and all the actuaries they hire, and all the diversified investments, this, scale of that investment fund is enormous, they can pretty much guarantee an 8% return over the lifetime for a California worker. That's not true in any 401k. No 401k could even come close to that. Therefore, they believe there should be a penalty attached, uh, an imputed value attached to being in the 401k, which makes no sense at all. Because, you have, because a worker has access to a better investment, we're going to penalize that worker. What they actually made a spectacular argument for is the value of defined benefit plans and how much private sector workers have lost 
by shifting the 401ks where the victims of very high transactions costs of the financial services industry. <laughs> so I don't see how you can say, again, and that's worth a 15% penalty. That's how they get the 30%. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed one other thing. No, that's only 8%. 7% or 8% is attributable to the fact that employees receive retiree health and that is true in the public sector. And my data has no way of accounting for it because retiree health insurance is a pay-as-you-go benefit. So it's not something that we're saving for. It's something that state will pay and corporations that provide these benefits do it the same way. It's something you pay each year as you go. So it's not a cost of currently employing workers. It's a cost of providing your, your retirees this benefit. Now, they said that that cost the state of California about 8% more in terms of total compensation, but that assumes total pre-funding of the health benefit. Now, we don't pre-fund retiree health benefits. There's a debate that we should or partially pre-fund them, but the actuaries do provide three estimates, pay-as-you-go, partial pre-funding, and full funding. And full funding, of course, is the highest, and that's 8% in California. But if you really look carefully at what California pays, it's less than 1% of compensation in the pay-as-you-go system. And it really revolves around one group, and that are protective services, our police and firefighters, who by the nature of their job 